Hey, do you feel like you're getting thrown around the healthcare system and are frustrated with the lack of clarity that you're getting from your providers? Do you feel like you're getting suboptimal care and that you deserve better? Do you want help busting some myths and deciphering what's good and bad information out there? If you'd like to be a part of a community that's connected with the best resources in the area and is taking small steps toward their health and fitness goals, then this podcast is for you. My name is Jeff Danning, and welcome to the Seeking Wellness Podcast. Okay, what's going on, guys? Thanks for tuning into the Seeking Wellness Podcast, Southeast Idaho edition. I'm Dr. Jeff Denning. I'm going to be your host today, and I'm joined by a very special guest of mine, a friend, a colleague in this crazy healthcare world, Dr. A. Sharavlov, who is a family practice resident, a doctor, doctor of osteopathic medicine, um, kind of over at Ermac in the, the community clinic across the street from me. So she's a, she's a jack of all trades, and I'm excited to have her here on the show today to talk about some lifestyle medicine and kind of what that entails. So just uh, just a disclaimer for any of you fools who think this might be med- medical advice, it is definitely not. You should consult your own physician. If you want that to be Dr. Sharavlov, you can, but not on the show. So welcome to the show. A hey, happy to have you here. Oh, thank you. I am super excited about this. <laughs> um, it's definitely been hard to fit in my schedule. So I appreciate you, uh, you know, bearing with me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's been tough to schedule. I mean, you've got residency is like a, a double full-time job, I would say. And then you've got like six other hobbies that you like pursuing outside of that. So um, very blessed to have you on, but First thing I like to talk about is usually just something unrelated to the topic of tonight. And since you have all these other hobbies that you enjoy doing, I'd love for you to just give a brief synopsis about the dog sledding that you like to participate in. Well, uh, most people kind of freak out when they hear that and they don't realize how common of a sport it is. Um, because most people think like Alaska and Iditarod and they're like, oh, you probably have like 60 dogs and they assume I have huskies. I do not. Well, okay. I actually, (laughs) I'm married into owning a husky. I would never own a husky willingly. Um, yes, they're, they're like the cats of the dog world. They, they really don't (laughs) care about you all that much. Um, they just want to do their own thing. Um, didn't know that. So yeah, so I do like what's called either sprint racing um, or urban mushing. So sprint racing is uh, either snow or dry land, which means dirt. Um, And you typically don't do distances over about 10 miles and you run a team that's probably under about six dogs, um, just because it's more of an urban thing. Um, I've always run in the three or four dog um, division, but I have run in the two dog. And right now, currently, I'm in between dogs. So my puppy actually is bothering me right now. Um, she's about eight months old, but she's training to be my new lead dog. So, wow. Um, so what yeah. is a, is, are you, do you use like an actual sled or how does that work? Okay. I have two Just dogs over, out in the garage. The dirt, okay. <laughs> um, I will say though, as much as I enjoy dog sledding, I don't actually like being cold all that much. So I actually prefer the dry land, which is, um, wow. And there's, there's different styles of it. There's like urban, like where people ha- will have more like street style bikes and they'll be on the pavement and kind of more in like urban areas. Um, and then there's more of like the, you kind of have to have some really good mountain bike skills and you've got one, <laughs> maybe two dogs and you're kind of hauling down like a single track trail. And that's my favorite. It's just not very doable out here where we live right now. Yeah. That sounds terrifying actually. It, it is. You trust uh, your dogs that much? I guess I, <laughs> it takes a while. So <laughs> it can, I've had some wipeouts. Actually, I wiped out last week testing the puppy on the longboard. That was <laughs> quite the adventure. I'm really glad I had a helmet on. Otherwise I probably would not be here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. How does, uh, how does one get into this sport? That seems like you said, not very common <laughs> and not many people know about it. Um, so I actually got into it, not knowing it was a sport. Um, I had this dog that I got in college and I was running, uh, twice a day already, a minimum of six miles a run. Cause I was in college cross country and he needed a lot of exercise. And so I figured out, I was like, I could 
probably do what dog sledders do. And I was like, well, there's no snow. And so I found this uh, spare harness somewhere in my, you know, think like kind of like a frat house. It was just found <laughs> and I duct taped it down to his size and put it on him. And then I um, had a rope and I borrowed my friend's longboard and I just brought him to this like long, empty street where I was like, I won't yeah. run into cars and there's no potholes. I will just let him go. And hopefully he'll be tired by the time I ask him to stop. (laughs) And so that's how I started with that because he figured it out within three strides. He knew what we were doing. And so then from there, I started trusting him. We started learning commands side to side, slowing down. And then when I moved back from Colorado to Washington, uh, Facebook groups still weren't like super big in 2014, but it was like two years later, I met someone and they were like, oh, I I race on scooters and I was like scooters and they're like yeah find this Facebook page and so I got in contact with people and I joined the Northwest Sled Dog Association and started racing (laughs) and uh honestly it was awesome most people there do run um uh, huskies Alaskans and Siberians in uh, like Washington and Oregon but you do have a couple people that run either mixed breeds kind of like I have typically run or they run euro hounds which is like take a greyhound and then just a tiny bit of husky and then German short hair pointer and give them a little cocaine and tell them to go <laughs> and that's what they're like <laughs> wow that is incredible huh well thank you for sharing um that that's super interesting but to uh <laughs> i guess divert back to the main topic of tonight a i'd love to hear how you kind of got into medicine and where you're at with your journey currently i i want to say that i picked medicine but i was raised in it so sometimes i wonder if that's why um so both my parents were paramedic firefighters growing up and so okay. they you know, I just grew up around emergency medicine. I knew the names of drugs and I knew what you'd use them for. I knew nothing else other than that, but I was like context. So I was like, Oh, Ativan, you give that to someone to calm them down. (laughs) Um, and then I went away to college and I told my parents when I graduated, I was like, I am never going to school again. That was awful. (laughs) And came home, didn't know what I was going to do. So I got a job working at a high-end sports club, um, and then got in, uh, on a scholarship to EMT school. And so went through EMT school, got a job as an EMT, and then actually ended up working in Seattle for three years or so as an EMT. And while I was in EMT school is when I realized I was like, Oh, I guess I want to be a doctor. And so started that whole endeavor. And so I entered medical school in 2017 and that's a four-year stint. And then I graduated last year. I've been in residency for one year. And as of uh, four days ago, I officially became a second year. And quoting that I am a second (laughs) year. I just don't feel like it. (laughs) Um, And so now we've got interns that are underneath me that I'm actually training them. And so I've got two more years before I'm actually out in the real world, um, kind of without anyone guiding me. So yes, but you do see real life patients currently? Yes. So I actually have my, my own patient panel. I see all my patients basically at this point, a year into my program, I could pretty much treat 90, maybe 85% of my patients without any help at all. Um, and then the more difficult patients, that's when I consult my preceptors and I'm like, Hey, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, like right now I'm actually working in the ER. And so I'm doing a lot more consulting my preceptors because just emergency yeah. medicine, this is my first time actually doing it on my own, not like in medical school where it's, you're very much guided each step. So, yeah. How has, how has residency been for you over the last year, reflecting back on that since you're an official second year now? Um, medical school, when you're in it, you're like, nothing can get harder than this. This is definitely the hardest thing I've done in my entire life. Um, and then you start residency and you realize it can get harder. Um, (laughs) and so you, you start July 1st. That's when all residencies across the United States start. So right at 4th of July, you get those interns in there that have no idea what they're doing. And, uh, you know, you blow off your fingers. That's like the worst time of the year to do that. Um, so that's like the ongoing joke in the medical field. Kick off trauma season, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Just throw them in there. Um, but yeah, so we start, July 1st. And from July 1st 
through about October, November, I don't really remember anything individually. <laughs> I just remember a blur, giant yeah, blur. it just kind of blurs together. Like I can tell you what rotations I did. I definitely was, I worked in the psych ward. I worked in the hospital. I worked in the pediatrics, but I can't tell you anything because I was just drowning. You're working more hours than you've ever worked in your life. And you get up and you're tired and it's not just working hours when you were there, you are using your brain at its absolute max capacity. And so you come home and you fall asleep and then you wake up and just go back and start it again. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so we do that. And so I will say probably around February um, is when I kind of started being like, I don't know if I can do this because you start re- like at about sure. November, you wake up and you're like, oh, okay this is my life right now. And then you have this dark winter where you get to the hospital and it's dark and then you leave the hospital and it's dark and you're so tired that, um, I I guess it's called like the, the winter lull or something, or everyone says that in February of intern year, that's kind of when you crash. And I definitely hit that where I, I was like, I don't know if I can do this. And then come March, all of a sudden I was like, I know how to do this. It was like a light switch kind of flicked. And all of a sudden I've been like, Oh, I know exactly what I'm doing. I can handle this. And, um, I think it was just like the whole year caught up with me and I was like, Oh, I know what I'm doing. Um, of course, and then every once in a while you'll have a day where you're like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Thank God there's someone here. Um, but yeah, it's been crazy. And, but I will say like the past two months, um, I actually feel like a doctor. I don't feel like I'm having anyone guide me anymore. Um, which I'm glad that I will have that for another two years, but I realize now that that first year is rough, but I think it gets better like from here on. Um, yeah, it's intentionally, so. it's intentionally <laughs> rough then to yes. prep you for second, third and fourth year. Yeah. They say it's like trying to drink from a fire hose and I'm like, Oh, that's right. very pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> nice visual with that. Exactly. Yeah. So you work in family practice. What are kind of some of the demographics or populations, medical cases that you mostly work with and see on a, on a day-to-day basis? Our clinic um, has special um, financial sliding scale for patients. And so because we take Medicare and we take Medicaid and we're willing to help patients that don't make enough money, we have a good portion of our population that actually is lower income, which is really good for training. And the reason being is you get a lot of patients that have put off their healthcare, put off their healthcare, put off their healthcare, and then they're actually quite sick and you have to know how to take care of them, which you know, in the real world stuff, you hope patients don't get there, but that means that in the three years that I'm training, I'm going to see a lot of really severe things and know how to take care of them. But that when I go out into the regular world and I have no one to rely on, I will actually have taken care of a lot sicker patients than what you normally would. Um, we also have a large Spanish speaking population, which is really hard for me because at one point in my life, I could kind of speak Spanish. And right now I cannot (laughs) (laughs) because that was a long time ago. (laughs) It's a great skill to have. Yeah. So I've been working on it and my patients are actually, I found the more I work on it and I at least try, they're actually willing to like bear with me and laugh (laughs) a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, sure. They're more receptive maybe to your advice if you, Mm -hmm. if you uh, speak their native tongue. Yes. Yes. So I'm trying really hard. Um, You know, I'd take, I honestly would take a medical Spanish class right now if I had time. I just, yeah. I don't have time <laughs> up here, on top of your yeah, other stuff you got going on. So mm-hmm. when, when someone comes in with like, I don't know, COPD and diabetes and they have, I don't know, poor physical health and they've got some anxiety going on. What's, how do you navigate that? What's kind of the first thing that you, Dr. Shravloff like to tackle? Um, so if I have patients coming in like that, typically unfortunately, most of the time they're coming because they've been to the ER and the ER said, you need a family doc, um, or at least you need a primary care provider. And so, um, and so I see them typically after they've had some acute exacerbation. So that's kind of where I start. If it's a COPD exacerbation, that's, that's where I'll start. If it was because they were in DKA because of diabetes, then that's where I'll start. But I typically tell them we cannot tackle this all in one um, 
one session that we're going to need to see each other quite regularly and we're going to become really good friends for the next few months and then hopefully if things go well you won't see me as much after that um and some of them like that and some of them you never see them again because unfortunately i think they got there um because of certain life choices and then when i start talking to them about certain things um i think they've just been set in their ways and my hope is that eventually they'll come back and be like oh i see it but I also try and not take it personally when I know that, you know what, it, it wasn't me. Um, so I start with the most acute problem and then I kind of start with the thing that typically will affect everything. And I, I don't bring it up right away because I think it's a very um, taboo topic, but typically weight loss is like the biggest thing that almost anyone can do. Um, obviously not if you're at normal weight, but, um, reducing EMI to a normal range is like, I can get them off of like four medications most of the time just by doing that alone. Um, so that's kind of something that I start sprinkling in, but we do it in, in sections. We talk about diet. We talk about, um, like changing their medications. A lot of medications cause weight gain and they didn't even know that. And they didn't know they had a choice and that there were other things they could be on, um, And so that's kind of, we start just chipping away at things. So we take the most critical things first. And then, um, I start talking about lifestyle stuff and I try and sprinkle it in separately. So I actually have started creating these handouts that I give to my patients. They are literally hand-drawn that I am scanning and updating constantly. Like you um, drew them? Yes. (laughs) Um, me and one other resident have been working on it. We've our favorite one right now. That's finished to a relative degree, um, even though they're kind of always going to be in, in works is a a mental health one. And so it kind of talks about all the things you can do diet and sleep and medications and therapy and behavioral changes and working out. And it talks about it and it gives you tips for every single thing. And so I actually have been bringing these handouts in, even for patients that don't have mental health issues, but let's say they've just got sleep. I started tackling one and actually it fixes some of the other stuff they've got. And so I bring it in every single time and they're probably tired of seeing the same darn piece of paper again, but I highlight what we're working on that time. And then I highlight in a different color, like what we've already been working on and the patients that actually get into it and really take um, a hold of their health, they see changes. And I've seen changes um, where we've reduced massive amounts of medication. Um, It's honestly, it's really exciting. Um, and so I like, I like it. <laughs> um, and then every once in a while I'll get the patients where they walk in and I say, you know, and I start sprinkling in some of the stuff that I'm talking about with lifestyle change. And they go, well, isn't there just a pill for that? And I'm like, well, you know, your cholesterol is like three times the size high of normal. Um, and they're like, no, no, I, there's a medication. My, my cousin takes a medication for it. I'm like, <laughs> okay. So I try and read the room a little bit. Um, cause I know not everyone's going to think the way I do. <laughs> so. yeah. It's uh, it's interesting that our emergency departments have kind of like turned into our primary care facilities, unfortunately, for a lot of people. Yeah. Working in the ED today, I already had two or three patients that came in for things that I would have taken care of in clinic. Um, and I give them my card. I tell them, come see me. And I, I don't really see most of them after that. So unfortunately... Um, I, and I never know why maybe it could be financial. It could be insurance. It could sure. be just time and work. Everybody's working. So I understand that. Yeah. That's a, that's a tough thing. I think to, sorry, that's my mom. <laughs> my mom. <laughs> uh, I'm keeping that, but our, <laughs> do you find that it's, how do you navigate that, um, kind of regular compliance and trying to get people to take an active approach in their, in their health and, um, you know, take some ownership, I guess, in what, how they're living. That's a, that's a tricky situation. I know, and a very loaded question, but one that you deal with, of course, one that I deal with in physical therapy as well, for those people trying to make uh, changes, not just in their shoulder pain, but in, you know, maybe I'm, I think in a prime spot to help them on their weight loss journey or whatever. So how do you kind of navigate those tricky waters? That is definitely a loaded question. I could probably go on that for for hours. (laughs) Um, 
first I try and assume or not try and assume, but I know that if they're there, obviously they want to fix it. So I figure that's the first step is like, they're there because they want change. Yeah. Now, whether they're willing to work for the change or they just expect that I will fix them. I try and teach my patients that I don't fix you medications don't fix you, but I teach you how to fix yourself. And if they actually understand that I have had patients that are like, well, you haven't been able to get control of my sugars and you haven't been able to, um, you know, get my lipids down and this and that. And I tell them, I'm like, I give you these tools and I'm trying to teach you because in the end I go home at night and I don't have your disease and you do. And I don't want you to have to deal with that every night you go home. And most of the time when I start explaining it to them like that, I'm like, you know, even things like the COVID vaccine, I tell them like, I do this because I care about you. I'm not ever pushing my own agenda on anyone. My hope is that I see you come back in, in a week or in a month or whenever, and you're healthy and alive and that everything I do it's for them. It's not for me, you know? Um, you hope it's an easy visit that you're like checking everything and you're like, yep, looks good. Yeah. And I, you know, and that's the amazing thing is I've been doing this for a year and obviously as an intern, the beginning of my intern year, I'd have a couple, you know, patients here and there. And as you know, your patient panel becomes bigger and bigger. I start seeing these patients more frequently and I've got so many that, you know, I know by heart, I know everything about them and I see them and I come in and I'm talking to them about their family. And when I first saw them, they needed a doctor and they had all these different meds that they had been put on by different doctors and no one. And I get them back and they're like, I'm feeling better. I'm not on these meds. I'm eating better. And they're happier. And like, obviously, unfortunately in the real world, that's only like one in 10, you know, each day, if I saw 10 patients, for example, only one of those is going to be those awesome stories. But my hope and what I've noticed is the more I do this, the more I see each day that are like that. So I love that. I guess if if I'm going to take your loaded question, put it all into one thing is (laughs) teaching patients to, um, take control of their own, um, health, that it's not me that I am there to help guide them, but they have to do it themselves. And that's probably putting everything into one tiny little box. Totally. Yeah. I, I can relate to that, um, from the other side of the aisle on the physical therapy spectrum, right? I can, uh, do things with my hands, uh, or tools or my needles, whatever, calm things down, get down that pain response, but it's really the movement afterwards that follows it up the movement that the actual patient is doing. And if they're only seeing me once a week, like what else are they doing? The other 167 hours of the week, right? Are they following up and trying to reinforce that habit into their lives that really keeps them better, right? You can guide them more of a guide, not a magician or a wizard, I guess is, is how it should be. But that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's my take on it. But I, I love that. So you've kind of touched on pieces of it already. And, and maybe there's uh, nothing else you have to add. But do you have a definition of like, what is lifestyle medicine? We've kind of covered the bits and pieces of it already, but do you have like a, a definition or, or anything that you'd like to expand on in that regards? Yeah. So I try and explain it to patients this way. And I'm like, I really like to do a lot of lifestyle medicine. And most of the time, some of them are like, Oh, that's just voodoo stuff. I just want you to give me medication. And I'm like, okay, okay. Maybe, maybe I'm, I'm preaching to the wrong choir. Um, but I try and explain it to them that I'm like, if we eat the right foods, they're medicine, not poison. And if we do the right things for our body, it will start healing itself. And hopefully I can help reverse some of the damage. Obviously we were humans. We've gone through a lot. I can't reverse everything. And there are certain things that are genetic. We're not gonna be able to fight. You can have a young, healthy 36 year old male, but if he's got a really bad family history of hyperlipidemia and high cholesterol, sometimes when he hits 30, he can be a, you know, a triathlete and he's still going to need a medication. And sometimes I I have to tell them that like, it's okay to know that that's what you're fighting, but it also isn't a reason to give up either. So yeah, really just 
trying to teach them that they can, again, heal themselves and they can take control of their own lives and their health. And I will help them where they can't. So what's the most difficult area of lifestyle? Diet. Um, diet. <laughs> you <laughs> you don't even have to, yeah. <laughs> to ask that. It's diet. <laughs> it is a question for me. Okay. What's so difficult about diet that people um, push back at you for? The American diet is like <laughs> one of the most unhealthy diets and it's really hard to get away from. So I eat pretty darn healthy and it takes all of my willpower a lot of the time to go out of my way to find foods that are actually healthy. Um, this is true. I, I saw a today at the, uh, the cafeteria in Ermac. <laughs> And she was like, yeah, nothing is good here today. And I don't know where you went after that, but probably to, to Whole Foods or some natural grocers or something. I went to the lounge <laughs> and got a giant bowl of mixed greens and then just put some balsamic on it. And I was like, I guess this is my lunch. Wow. Good for you. Good for you. <laughs> well, the only thing in the cafeteria they had was uh, was iceberg lettuce. And I was like, well, yeah, go get something else. <laughs> Crunchy water, right? <laughs> yeah. But no, so sorry to interrupt though. No, 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 no. I think that was actually a pretty funny example. I kind of embarrassed you saw that. I was literally like, oh, nothing good here. (laughs) Well, she practices what she preaches. (laughs) Well, every once in a while, I will be totally honest. Like lately I have been on this weird, I think this is from my childhood. I was never allowed to have fast food. And Hmm. those milkshakes that you get at like McDonald's or Burger King, like just a vanilla milkshake. Yeah. as a child has always been my favorite thing. And right now I feel like one of those people that realize they're an adult for the first time and no one's going <laughs> to tell them what they can't do. And like the past couple of weeks, I've had a milkshake every week <laughs> from like you. a fast food restaurant. Yeah. Very <laughs> cool. Well, I, I guess we're all human and that is a okay. Um, but quantity and portions, um, okay. I consider that part of diet is also a huge thing is, um, especially here in Idaho falls. So I come from Seattle. I, Mm -hmm. it is not uncommon for people to order an eight ounce or a 12 ounce coffee, like a latte or or drink or whatever. And I come here and the smallest size they have is a 12 ounce for hot. And then for cold, the, the smallest thing you can get is a 16 ounce drink. And, um, yeah. I realized that when I came out here that I was like, well, can I get a kid's one? And they were like, no, you're not allowed to do that. And I was like, well, but I want that drink, but I want the kid's size. And I'm like, I see it on your menu. And they're like, yeah, you can't have that. What? Um, You've been told no? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Actually, we were at a Red Robin. I looked at the menu and I was like, I really want a milkshake. So like, this was my milkshake kick. And yeah. I was like, but I don't, have you seen the ones at Red Robin? They're this big and you get two of them. And <laughs> yeah, the I was like, up. I do not need that. So as the lady's taking our order and I was like, oh, and uh, I'll take a kid's milkshake. And she's like, oh, I'm sorry. That's only for the kids. And I literally, I didn't even know it was my, I guess, technically my cousin or nephew or something, but just through marriage. And I, I, I it down and uh but she, I mean, obviously she knew I was lying, but I straight up was like, oh, I'm just ordering it for this child here, but they would not let me get something small. Um, <laughs> and I was like, okay. Wow. So. That's kind of a slap in the face. Yeah. My, my cardio pump professor in PT school um, calls it sad, the standard American diet. And I was like, I like that <laughs> a lot. Like, oh man, that is, uh, that is, uh, that has a lot of truth to it actually. I'm. I'm totally going to use that. You can steal that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Standard American diet. Um, Actually, I'm like only a quarter away through this book, but it's called Mm. how not to die. And it's this, um, doctor massive book. It is massive and it's, it's very dry. So I will warn you if you pick it up, it's only like a one or two pager per day kind of thing. (laughs) Um, but it's this doctor who was a family practice doctor and he got really angry that all of his patients, um, when he would change their diets and stuff like that, they would get better, but he was only fixing one person at a time. And so finally he, um, decided to quit being an active practicing doctor and he got, or he started doing seminars and lectures and teaching, um, doctors how to, um, 
educate their patients and teaching patients how to educate themselves. Um, most people do not even know what an actual good, healthy diet is. I tell my patients often, I'm like, okay, so we need to eat healthier. Um, cause I do, I always ask patients their diet, at least within the first few sessions of seeing them. And it is not uncommon for them to be like, oh, I, I like fast food. And then I ask them like, what do they eat? And they're like, oh, well, I'll get like Burger King on my way to work. And then they'll get some sort of fast food thing like, um, PF chain or not PF chains, but, uh, Panda express yeah. at lunch. And then on their way home, they'll like pick up more fast food. And that is their actual diet. Really? And I was like, what? And they were like, so I don't even know how to eat healthy. And I've had patients ask me, they're like, I don't even know how to walk around the grocery store. And I'm like, we have no way to educate these patients, but that was what he found. And so he wow. actually, this massive book is all researched, um, papers that he has compiled and um, shown the, like that eating a healthy diet and what you need to eat and what you can do um, will actually heal you basically from the inside out. Um, and so it's very interesting. I think the biggest caveat, and I don't tell patients this because not a single patient would even come and see me again if I told them that they needed to eat a completely plant-based diet. Um, they would honestly just be like, well, <laughs> there's other doctors here, right? <laughs> um, or maybe even different clinic. I don't know. Yeah. And so, um, I kind of go off of that, which is really unfortunate because that's actually like the dash diet, which is the number or is what cardiologists recommend to their patients, um, for cardiovascular health. It is literally the national standard, um, was created by a doctor who is a vegetarian and, he, all of his research compiled, proved that being a vegetarian would reverse the effects of a lot of the disease in their vessels. And when it came down to it, he recommended that it have meat in the diet. And the only reason he did that is because he knew that if he recommended a diet that was vegetarian, Appliance, nobody yeah. would call it. Yeah. And so it's really unfortunate. Wow. The gold standard across the United States for heart disease is not actually the diet that does best for it, but it's only because it's most likely to have better compliance. So. Does that, does that stand for something dash? Is that an acronym? Oh, it does. But I, it's been so long since I've looked at that. Um, <laughs> okay. Yes, Sorry. That was, a... um, <laughs> that was not a S H. That was not a gotcha question. It's kind of embarrassing, but yeah. <laughs> um, so is that, is that what you pitch to most people as a good starting point or is there, are there other diets <laughs> or eating habits that you really prefer? I start slow. I tell patients if they try and make any changes overnight, it's going to last maybe three days and then they're never going to try to change again. So I actually make all of my changes in tiny increments to the point where I hope that they notice that they're changing, but it's not enough that it's affecting their life all that much. So most of the time, um, I start with just incorporating, um, more vegetables. So rather than cutting foods out, I typically try and add foods because mentally you are more likely to not feel like you're losing something. If you're adding something into your diet versus taking something away. Right. And then after we've added in vegetables and all these other things to each meal, then I start going, okay, let's reduce the amount of, um, eggs and dairy, because obviously those are really high in cholesterol and meat. I, I try and say, you know, let's reduce meat. But for some reason I found that kind of reducing eggs and dairy first tends to work a little better, but I can go either way, depending on the patient. Yeah. And I do that until I see them next time, which is kind of a month later. And I kind of ask how it goes. And then I basically just do these tiny little steps. And even as I'm doing it, I tell them we're, there's a lot we can do, but we're only going to do a little bit right now because I want you to have this diet 20 years from now. And I tell yeah. them my goal is to have a big change over a year versus over a couple of days. So you're forcing them to zoom out a little bit mm -hmm. and not look yeah. at the days or the hours and rather the months of the years. Yeah. So I try and make it, um, uh, something that you can tackle because I think when you look at it and it's daunting and I'm like, yeah, I want you to go to a plant-based diet. They just run away. <laughs> so have you heard of the, um, 800 gram challenge? No. What's that? It is, I don't know that I'd necessarily even call it a diet, but it's kind of a, trend is maybe a bad word to use, but it's a, it's a trend that, um, I actually tried and was rather quite fond of, but kind of along the same lines that you were saying is you can basically eat whatever you want, but you're 
goal for the day for like 30 consecutive days is to get 800 grams of fruits and vegetables each day. So it's a way to like, yeah, just target and load up on fruits and vegetables. I think the idea is basically that you get like full from eating that because it's a pretty healthy portion of uh, fruits and veggies, especially if you have some of the lighter like salads and stuff that don't add too much to the gram um, mm-hmm. intake. But yeah, I thought that was, that was kind of a cool thing that is not, like you said, taking away any of the patient's favorite things uh, immediately because behavioral change is something that's, yeah, very tricky, very tricky. Well, and I do things um, like, because sugar is in everything in, uh, what is it, SAD? the standard American diet. Um, (laughs) um, I will tell them, I'm like, Hey, let's start when you get those coffees in the morning, because you know, everyone gets these big vente sugar filled drinks. I was like, order it half sweet. And I'm like, you probably won't even notice a difference, but you're going to get half as much sugar. And so we start there. And then sometimes I bring that up later. I'm like, okay, now why don't you order it a quarter sweet? Or if it's too bitter, then I say, why don't we try and do I really don't like sugar-free, but sometimes I just need these little steps to get past with patients. And so I try and do like, well, maybe get it sugar-free and still half sweet. Um, like sweetener, you mean? Or Yeah, I'm sorry. So if you order something, if you go up to a drive-thru and you say, I want like a vanilla latte half sweet, that's the barista language for saying you only want half of the sweetener that they add to it. Okay. So, sorry. I was also a barista right before medical school. <laughs> No kidding. Um, yeah. So I try and cut out little things. So some of the advice that I give my patients is not actually the end goal. So it may seem like I'm actually like allowing certain things or promoting things that aren't good, but I'm promoting things that aren't good, but are better than what they were. And eventually we'll cut that out as well. Yeah. So So you're not a fan of like diet sodas then, or did I misinterpret that statement? No, no. So I don't think diet sodas are good, but Uh, like with my diabetics, it almost comes down to like, I have to allow it because they need something. Um, but we've been finding that, um, the sweeteners and stuff that are used, these artificial sweeteners may actually be toxic to the brain. And that there's some preliminary research that has been connecting it to like earlier dementia and issues like that. So I'm now on the fence of like, Oh, should you do it? And you do get an insulin spike which the insulin is what your body releases from the pancreas when you eat. And it's what takes, it tells all that sugar or allows all that sugar to go into your cells and be used without insulin. Sugar just hangs out in your bloodstream and doesn't get used. And so you can have all the sugar in the world, but if you don't have insulin, um, you won't be able to use it. So you still get an insulin spike when you have sugar-free sodas um, or sugar-free things. And they're starting to find that people end up overeating afterwards because all of a sudden you've got no sugar because you just had something that's sugar-free, but you've got insulin. So then you actually get this sugar low because your body pulls all the sugar that just is hanging out in your bloodstream into your you cells get and, then you get this dip, and then you suddenly become more hungry. So you overeat and you end up going for something that's really sweet. So I, I I'm on the fence of whether it's good. I kind of feel like if that's what people need and they don't have, they don't overeat or they're diabetic and all they can have is I have one patient that loves sugar-free jello. And I'm like, you know what? That sounds disgusting. But <laughs> if that is the only thing, cause he's been eating really healthy and his diabetes is almost perfectly under control. And it was, um, violently rampant prior. <laughs> and now I have him almost at what you and I are walking around at. And I figure if that's his vice is every night he has his sugar-free jello, I'm going to take it. I'm going to say, yeah, fine. You have that because from where he went to where he is now, maybe one day he'll decide he doesn't need that jello anymore, but I'm so proud of him. And I'm so happy of the changes that I'm not going to push it. So. Hey, are there any like really common misconceptions that you hear either? I mean, we've kind of been focused on like diet and nutrition the last little bit, but in general, I guess you could if there's anything you are like, oh, that's just not true. And I'm hearing it a lot in clinic or that's just, uh, you just have wrong information. <laughs> Sorry. The biggest one is that, um, I'm actually doing a huge lecture on this, um, in oh a few weeks for the residents, um, is nice. that you need 
meat and um, animal products in order to get the right amount of protein and that you need this massive amount of protein in order to survive. Otherwise you're gonna wither away to nothing. And uh, I can try and summarize some of this stuff because it's actually really interesting. Um, in the 1930s, that is when two things happened. So we kind of went from having ice boxes to having refrigerators. And so suddenly people were able to keep meat, which wasn't really accessible prior. Mm-hmm. And then um, also the invention of the TV. And so people started watching TV and with uh, TV came commercials. And that's where you started seeing smoking and uh, pharmaceuticals, which I guess technically pharmaceuticals have been more, more recent, but the meat and dairy industry took over um, advertising. Like they, that was basically the biggest thing was they could push their products. And so they pushed all of their products so that meat was manly, meat was healthy. You needed all this protein, that meat was American. And that was huge. Beef jerky. Exactly, exactly, yes. Um, and so they pushed that and they created this culture that revolved around the fact that we thought we needed meat. And so suddenly breakfasts turned into, you know, bacon and eggs in the morning and like roast beef or turkey sandwiches at lunch and then like uh, meat and potatoes and stuff at night. And that was not the diet prior to that. Um, and so you have this huge shift of people eating more and more animal products. And it's funny because that's really when things started taking off. We started seeing more heart disease. We started seeing all these issues that didn't exist before. Fast forward to like the 1970s, the dairy industry was kind of confused as to how, why they were lo- or not confused. They were trying to figure out what to do because they were losing all this money on all these byproducts. And so the, the cheese, when you make it, it creates a, what is it? Casein and uh, whey. And so those are just really high in protein. And so they were like, we can, we can market this. And so they turned it into all these. And that's like the invention of like the protein powders and the protein shakes and protein bars. That's all from the seventies. And they tried to market it towards athletes, but the ones that really picked up on it at the time were bodybuilders. And so you started seeing these bodybuilders that were having all these protein shakes and having all this excessive protein because they believed that that's what they needed in order to not wither away. Fast forward again, now in this day and age, you have the average Joe who sits at his desk, um, does nothing all day, goes home and he's like, oh, I need my protein shakes. I need my protein bars. I need all of this stuff. And it's um, the amount of protein that someone needs is actually so minimal um, compared to what is advertised. Now, those people that are athletes that do work out regularly, they do need more than the average person, but still not even as much as advertised. Um, and so what do you see numbers advertised as? Um, most of the time you'd probably see somewhere around like one to two, um, grams per kilogram of body weight. Um, and I do not have any of this math off the top of my head. So I'm trying to remember. So like, someone my size, typically, especially in like the nutrition world, you'll see is advertised like, oh, they probably need somewhere close to like a hundred ish, uh, grams of protein, if not more. And maybe someone that's athletic, that's, that's working out every day that that actually could be functional for them. But for the average Joe, they probably don't need more than about 60 ish, um, grams of protein a day. And most of the time, if you're eating actually a decently healthy diet, if you just eat like legumes, tofu, other stuff that's um, very high in protein, spinach, eh, fine. If you even just eat meat and have a steak dinner and stuff like that, you'll get all the protein you need without trying. Um, But so meat became this like, or sorry, not meat, but protein became this like advertised commodity. And you can sell so many things these days just because you're like, oh, it's high in protein. You see it on boxes all the time. Um, so sorry, that was like a tangent of like a, an hour lecture that I just tried to put into like <laughs> a couple minutes, Yeah, but yeah, <laughs> no, thank you for that. That is interesting. Cause I have heard, yeah. Um, differing, I guess, differing opinions to mm-hmm. that you just told me. So do you find that a lot of your patients come in consuming mm-hmm. excess protein? Uh, yes. And the idea that I tell them that they need to cut back on, um, 
on what they're eating for protein and stuff like that. I'm like, okay, let's cut back on like the chicken and the the dairy. Well, most of the time it's cheese. So it's like chicken, cheese, tortillas, that kind of thing. I'm like, let's cut back on that and do more vegetables. And they panic and they're like, well, well, I'm not going to get enough protein. And Mm. so it's, it's hard to retraining. I will be honest, even me who knows all this, I see the research. I know that it's real. Even I have a hard time of letting that go. And I still do my protein shakes. Granted, I do work out quite a bit, sure. so that's fine. But I'm probably still getting way more than I need just because it's out of habit. It's out of, I've trained my body. I know that I probably don't need it, but mentally I'm like, ah, but what if I do? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, even I fall into that. Gotcha. Are there any, this is sort of a different take on the same question, I guess, okay. but do you what do you wish people would know that, I don't know, maybe you find yourself saying consistently in clinic or you just wish it were more common knowledge? Um, so I don't know if I'm completely answering this, but the first thing that comes to my mind when you're like, what is something that you wish patients would know? And I have had, and maybe it's just like the past month or what, but I have had a large amount of patients coming in with depression and anxiety And the first thing that I do is, um, obviously we, we start with medications and stuff, but I tell them that we are not doing the medications are not going to fix you. It's just going to make fixing yourself a little bit easier while it's really hard right now. And I, we focus on gratitude journals, um, because you actually get a serotonin and dopamine surge when you write three things a day that you are truly thankful for, not just things that you should be thankful for and stuff, but things that you're like, no, actually that was really cool. Or that really made me happy. Um, is that something you do at the end of the day or like, doesn't matter when point during the day. But then the second thing is exercise. I prescribe it and it's very hard. So I start with just like five minutes a day with patients, but I have had And maybe the reason I'm actually saying this is because I've had a lot of patients that obviously I picked up about a year ago and I'm seeing them now and they came in suicidal, depressed, anxious, not really feeling like life was worth living. And we made a lot of changes, not just these ones, but the one that I feel like affected them the most was when I added in exercise. Really? Like I honestly felt like that was the biggest change that I saw the biggest change in between those sessions where I would see them was when we started adding exercise and you can do weightlifting. Um, that works, but what I have found in actual like research papers is that either 30 minutes of moderate intensity cardio, like getting your heart pumping or 15 minutes of high intensity cardio, which, um, you know, a lot of people can at least try and find that 15 minutes of high intensity. You will have this endorphin high that does, it works just as well as taking one antidepressant medication. And most people tend to need more than one uh, when they're really bad. Okay. So that's the one thing that I don't know why that after talking about nutrition and everything else, that's the one thing that comes to my mind is that exercise truly it seems to be the way out of a lot of depression and anxiety that people are having. Um, yeah. I think even anecdotally, you know, right. You see these amazing stories of people that have just had something horrible, some horrible situation in their life happen and they make like a significant change in their exercise routine. And you see them like a year later and they're just absolutely crushing it in the gym and in life. And so, yeah, I'm obviously a big, a big fan of that that uh, the uh, American Heart Association actually updated their um, guidelines this year, I think, um, and they doubled that number that you just mm-hmm. told me. So 60 minutes per day or uh, 600 minutes a week, I guess, or 30 minutes of high intensity. Um, but yeah, it's a big, big fan of, of CrossFit style workouts, obviously, if anyone's not aware of that already <laughs> um, and, and jacking that heart rate up, just lots of benefits to making yourself feel like a badass for a small portion of your day, I think. Yeah. So, well, this has been awesome. I think we could probably just troubleshoot and 
and and chat for hours on i mean we didn't really dive super deep into mental health or physical fitness any any other that any of the other lifestyle components but it's been great chatting with you i know you've got a heck of a schedule to keep up with so any parting thoughts before i let you off um God, I have so many that I want to add. <laughs> I feel like I'm like, no, I have more advice. Let's do this. Let's get more people knowing about this. Yeah. Um, well, maybe we'll have to have you on for a second episode. Yeah. No, I'm totally all for that. You can make note. I want to talk about steps and movement. Okay. That's like a huge thing that I talk about is like steps and movement and just not sitting. And I have a whole spiel on that. Okay. Um, not that right. you need it, but I figured <laughs> other people might like it. Right, right. Um, but yeah, no, I no, I really could just go on for hours and bore all your listeners. So. <laughs> hey, well, we'll save it for another episode then. If uh, if people want to reach out to you and chat about their medical issues or are wanting to make a change in their life, what's the best way to contact you or come see you in clinic? Um, yeah, so actually I am taking patients on in clinic still. I have plenty of room to add to my panel. Um, and I'm like, most of the time, if you're seeing me, um, you can get in pretty easily. So I would just say, call the community family clinic. Um, say you, you know, you want an appointment with Dr. Shravloff and they'll get you in. I warn people that on certain rotations that I'm on, like right now I'm in the, the emergency department. Um, yeah. and so I'm only in clinic all day, uh, Monday and Tuesday. Um, and then there's other rotations where I'll only be in for like one and a half days. That being said, I have not typically had a problem with patients getting in to see me as long as that they can see me on the days that I'm there. Um, or like, I'm sorry, that they're available on the days that I'm there. So, um, I would be more than willing to see them if they want to call and want a recommendation. There are other, a couple other residents that treat patients the exact same way that I do, or we, we share a lot of similar resources and stuff like that, that oh, you know, okay. if they want, especially like if they want a mail or for whatever reason, um, yeah. I also have recommendations of doctors they can see and they feel free to call there and ask. Okay. Um, yeah. So Fantastic. I just well, wasn't sure if they want their name shared all over the internet. Otherwise I would do that. <laughs> just throw them under the bus. Why don't you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much. Um, we'll, we'll have to connect it at a later date when maybe your schedule is not so hectic, but it's uh, it's been a blast chatting with you. Eh? And thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next time. Hey, everybody. I just want to say thank you for listening to the Seeking Wellness Podcast. I would love it if you subscribe so you never miss out on any of these great episodes. If you haven't left me a review yet, that would mean the world to me so I can implement any of your feedback that you have for me. And if you feel compelled to do so, share this out with more people because my goal is to connect with and help as many people as possible in our community. And finally, if you have any ideas for future episodes or suggestions on guests I should interview, please shoot me a message because I'd love to hear from you. Thanks again, and until next time.